Um, so we are in a series on spiritual warfare, which I think is very well termed um, overcomers. Um, it is God's way to equip us to overcome the attacks of the enemy in the real battle of spiritual warfare that we face. So spiritual tattoo for this message, and spiritual tattoo is the, the big take-home message, um, is that we must be a spiritual people if we are to fight a spiritual war. Mm. So, just to give a big picture, when we think of spiritual warfare, there are many things that come to mind. Um, a helpful, a helpful way to consider spiritual warfare is, is what is the goal of the enemy? What is the goal of those who oppose the people of God in spiritual warfare? So the, 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 the dominions, the authorities, the rulers, the kingdoms that the Bible speaks of, what is their ultimate end or the ultimate goal? I can summarize this way. It is that we would distrust God and that we would be unfruitful in our lives as believers. So whether it is Satan in the Garden of Eden, right at the start of the scriptural story, when he says to Eve, God is not good, and he is holding out on you. Don't trust him, trust yourself. Or when Satan is oppressing Job, in the book of Job, um, this man, who believes in God goes through extreme suffering and oppression. And the goal of the enemy, the goal of Satan through that is to convince Job, God is letting you suffer. He will not save you, curse him, and die. Don't trust him. When Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Jesus is in the desert, he is fasting, he is praying, and Satan comes to him, and he says to him, in the different temptations he brings before Jesus, he says to him, God is promising to bless you after you suffer on the cross. I will bless you right now if you submit to me. So the goal of spiritual warfare, whatever it looks like, whether it is it is physical oppression and suffering, it is that we would distrust God. Whether it is the daily fight with our flesh that rebels against God, it is to distrust God. So as we think about spiritual warfare, that's the goal. Now, the spiritual tattoo is that we must be a spiritual people if we're to fight a spiritual war. Let's start off with talking about being spiritual people. Let's start off talking about spiritual deadness and spiritual warfare. One of the most problematic, one of the most powerful means by which sin does its work in the world is deceptiveness. So the majority of people in the world do not know that there is a spiritual realm. The majority of people in the world who do not believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel 
of his salvation are blind to the captivity that they're under. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, this is how Paul puts it. In their case, speaking of those who don't believe, no one is born believing. So every single one of us is in this passage at some point in our journey. In their case, the God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you have most of the people in the world who aren't fighting a spiritual war because they're blind to the fact that it's happening. They're blind to the captivity that they're under. They're blinded by the God of this age that they would not see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we do and what we're called to do as a church is to go out and preach the gospel. Because the one who blinds those who don't know Christ is powerful. But the scripture says to us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So to start off, if we don't know Jesus Christ, if we don't know the gospel, then we are not fighting a spiritual war. The strategy of Satan for the unbelievers is to keep them in ignorant captivity. It's only when the gospel comes and our eyes are open that we realize, oh, there are forces opposing me as I try to live out this life that I'm called to. One author puts it this way. He says that if you are in a river that is flowing, it's only when you start to try swim upstream that you realize how strong the force is that's opposing you. If you are unconscious in the river, you're being carried along. You have no idea where you're going. It's only when you are alive to the fact that you're in here and you're trying to swim upstream that you realize how strong the forces are that oppose you. And that's what spiritual warfare is. The strategy of the enemy is to keep the world blind to what he is doing. His strategy for those who believe, so for those who don't believe, it's to keep them in ignorant captivity. His strategy for those who believe is to make them forgetful about the blessings they have and who they're up against. So, if the enemy can keep you forgetful about what the gospel means for your life, he can achieve the same end, even if you're a believer. Listen to how Peter puts it. This is in 2 Peter 1, verse 8 to 9. So Peter speaks about how you have a faith that is given to you. And because of these great promises that the Lord has placed before you, and you have this faith, he says, add to your faith kindness and brotherly love and compassion and all these other things that you are, as a recipient of faith, adding to them. 
And he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. That's how the CSB puts it. The English Standard Version puts it this way. The person who lacks these things is so short-sighted as to be blind and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So even if your eyes are open by the gospel and you know of this salvation, you know of this God, you know of this mercy that's extended to you, if the, if the enemy can keep you forgetful, of what the gospel means that you've been cleansed from your sins, yeah. you can be so short-sighted that it's as if you are blind. Good, so the strategy of the enemy is to keep you forgetful. And so when we come into the book of Ephesians, one of the first things that Paul does in the first chapter of Ephesians, and Carolyn went through this beautifully as we went through singing. Um, what a beautiful time of worship and singing. Amen? Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Um, as we start in the book of Ephesians, the first thing that Paul is intent on doing is reminding this church of their blessings in the gospel. From verse 4 to verse 13, it's like a laundry list of blessings that Paul is putting forward. And in fact, as you read it, Mark and I are trying to memorize Ephesians 1. And as you try and memorize the passage, it's almost like, Paul, why? It's so repetitive that it seems unusual. Like, who speaks this way? Well, who speaks this way? Someone who knows that you need to be reminded of the blessings you have because the enemy is going to try and make you forget that you would become unfruitful. So, in verse 4, the blessing he tells us of is that we are chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, we are predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters according to his lavish grace. In verse 7, he tells us we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In verse 9, Mark, what's verse 9 there? Struggling, struggling. In verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, how he has purposed to bring everything together in earth and in the heavens in Christ. In verse 11, he says, we've received an inheritance because we are predestined to do so by the sovereign king. In verse 13, we're given the spirit as a guarantee that we will receive this great inheritance. So he goes from eternity past before the foundation of the world, the Lord chose to bless you. To the end of time, you have the Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance you're going to get. Nine verses of just going through all the blessings of the gospel. And if you're like me, if you read through this passage, a lot of times our hearts are not warmed by them. A lot of times you don't have the joy that these verses should bring to our hearts I was thinking about this as I was preparing. Um, I feel like I got more joy when I learned that my phone was going to get the new Android 10 update in the next two weeks than when I was going through Ephesians 1. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay? And I think that's why Paul is giving all this information. He says, I know you're going to forget. And I know that even as I tell this to you, the next thing he does, he doesn't give us all these blessings and then call us to go and live it out. There's something he does in between. And Karen, again, like went through this beautifully. After telling us and proclaiming the truth, he prays that we would receive it and rejoice in it. So, in verse, hold on, I'm going to find it here. In verse 17 to 19, this is what Paul says. He's given them all the blessings, and he prays in 17 to 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He's told us and proclaimed the promises, and now he is praying that they would settle in our heart and bring us joy. He says, I've told it to you, but that's not enough. <laughs> I'm going to pray that the Lord helps you really rejoice in what the gospel is. Then he tells them, I want you now go and live this out. Church, that is, that is the model of discipleship. As we are relating to one another, as Paul does to the Ephesians, we need to do for one another. Proclaim the truth to each other. Pray for one another that we would receive it and rejoice in it. And then push one another to live it out. So proclaim the truth. Pray that we rejoice in it and push one another that we would live it out. So when Paul has us, as he goes through all of this, and now in chapter 5, he's, and he's urging and pushing the church, now live out this gospel. It's been proclaimed, I've prayed that you receive it, now I'm going to push you to live it out. In Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16, he says something interesting. You'd think after giving us the truth, Praying that they receive it, it's like go and live it out and you're fine. He uses terminology of spiritual warfare in how we are to live out the gospel. In verse 15 and 16 of chapter 5, he says, Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. The truth is proclaimed. It's been prayed over. And now as it pushes us, he says, but I need you to be careful. Because the days that you are living in are evil. What he means by that is if you're not careful, even knowing the truth and rejoicing in the truth, if you aren't careful, you will be caught up in the same evil that the world is in. 
You see, in 2 Peter, in the passage that we had read earlier on, it speaks about you being so short-sighted that you're blind. Peter expresses the gospel this way, that these are the promises of God given to us to enable us to escape the corruption of the world that we live in and to partake in the divine nature. So the gospel promises empowers us to live as Christ does and to escape the lures and the attractions of the corrupt and broken world that we live in. And Paul is saying to us, if you're not careful in how you walk, you will be caught up in that. We used to live in the jungles for the last three years or so. Um, and every time we told people who lived in the jungles that we just moved there, a lot of times they said to us, and the jungles is Baldwin Village, like right where we are. Um, a lot of people would say to us that, yeah, no, it's really calmed down. Like 10 years ago, like you couldn't even like walk through the park. You couldn't wear the wrong, it's still the case in some ways now, you couldn't wear the wrong color clothing in the jungles. Like you had to be careful about how you walk. You couldn't walk carelessly. And Paul is saying the same things to us, that you have to be careful how you walk because there is danger around. And so as he starts to break down what it means to walk carefully versus walking carelessly, we're going to go into verse 18 to verse 21. This is what he says. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So he says, don't get drunk with wine, leading to reckless living. That's the careless way to live and walk. The careful way to live and walk is be filled by the Spirit. Now, the word filling of the Spirit is used by Paul in other parts of Ephesians. And it's going to be helpful for us to like look at what he means by that, to understand what he means when he says to us, be filled by the Spirit. So, in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, he speaks of Christ filling all things. Here's how he puts it. He exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected everything. So this is God the Father subjects everything under the feet of Christ and appointed him as head over everything. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one, Christ, who fills all things in every way. Okay? So when he speaks here of Christ filling all things, it's in reference to everything being subject to him. So when Christ fills all things, it means everything is under his feet and subject to him. So when we consider what it means for Christ to fill all things, the one thing it means is that everything is subject to him. 
The other way that Paul uses filling is in Ephesians 4, when he talks about how when Christ was raised from the dead, it says he led captivity captive. So all of those rulers and powers and authorities that were holding people captive, Jesus took them captive and gave gifts to men. Now, the picture there is of a conqueror who would go and conquer another land. So would go with his army, conquer this other land, take it, plunder the spoils, get back home and give the wealth of that land to his people. So when Jesus in this case is, talk, is, is spoken of filling all things, it's in reference to him having full control over the things that he has filled. He conquers and he gives gifts to his people. So if Paul uses the word filling to mean that Christ, everything is subject to Christ and under his control, and that's what we should take as the meaning of being filled by the Spirit, that all parts of our life are subject to the Spirit and under the control of the Spirit. Yes. Yeah. Now, the opposite of being filled with the Spirit is not necessarily being drunk, okay? So he uses this being drunk with wine because it gives us the picture of if you are filled with wine, what overflows is reckless living. When you are filled with the Spirit, what overflows is what he speaks of in verse 19 and 20. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's our relationship with others, is joyful and kind and compassionate. That's what overflows. When you're filled with the Spirit, what bubbles over is that our relationships are kind and loving. Singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. You have joy in the Lord despite your circumstances. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have thankfulness regardless of what's happening in our circumstances, and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The way we live with one another is we put each other first. So that's what overflows when we are filled with the Spirit. Now, I once tried to fix our Brita at home. Um, it says, like, you know, replace the filters every three months. We didn't do that. Um, and so now we had to, like, clean it. Um, so I was, like, taking it out and, like, cleaning it inside and out, trying to clean every single piece of it. Um, and one of the little, like, rubber stoppers that I took out to try and clean didn't go back as well. And I was like, oh, it's going to be fine. We'll just figure it out. So I put it, you know, put the little tap back in and tried to fill the Brita, but because this stopper wasn't there, it kept on emptying out as I tried to fill it, okay? So it's like, well, this is, this is pointless. We got a new one. But the point of it is because the Brita was emptying out, it couldn't be filled with what I was trying to fill it with. Now, 
if, in the same way, if we have areas of our lives that we are keeping from the Spirit's influence. See, when it says we sh the Spirit should fill us, it means every single thing in our lives, relationships, work, priorities, all that is subject to and controlled by the Spirit. Because if there are areas that aren't subject to the Spirit, there won't be an overflow. Your brittle will not get full. Okay? Right. <laughs> it will be continuously emptied, and there won't be the overflow that touches our relationships with each other, our relationships with the Lord, our internal peace in Him. So some ways, some ways in which we hold back the parts of our life from the Spirit. And, and Paul gives examples of these in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.27. If filling of the Spirit results in compassionate, kind, loving relationships, this is what Paul says in 4.27. See how this relates to spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 4.27 do not let the sun go down on your anger, it's unforgiveness, right after that, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Okay? So as you keep parts of your life away from the influence of the Spirit, that's just a doorway for the enemy to come in. So when we are filled with the Spirit, then we are protected against the influences of the enemy. Do you see the relation in that? As Christ, as Christ fills the church, so as Christ fills the church, this is out of um, Ephesians 4. It speaks of Christ conquering the spiritual authorities, plundering them, and giving gifts to his people. And then Paul says, these gifts are the spiritual gifts that when the church uses these gifts to build up one another, the church as a whole grows in maturity and is protected from every wind of doctrine that'll toss us back and forth like little children. So as Christ fills his church, through the church using their gifts to build up one another, then the church is protected from spiritual attack. As believers are filled by the Spirit, then we are protected from the attacks of the enemy. And Pastor Tom is going to go through what, what that would look like. In, in Ephesians 6, Paul speaks through each of the areas of armor to put on. That as we are filled by the Spirit, this is how He protects us. But I don't want us to rush past the implications of what hidden sin or things in our lives we keep from the Spirit, what that can do for our lives and for the church. You see, sin's desire for our lives is that we would be destroyed. 
when Cain in Genesis is angry that the sacrifice he brought to the Lord was not accepted, the Lord comes to Cain and says to him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to master you, to dominate you. What happens a lot of times, I believe, is that we allow little sins in and try and like harbor them. I'm just going to keep this in this little corner. It's going to be my little sin right here. I'm not going to submit this to the Lord. It might be, it might be selfishness. It might be greed. Um, it might be lust. Um, sin will never just stay as a nice little garden plant in the corner of the house. One author, Thomas Brooks, puts it this way. If the serpent sneaks its head through the door, he will draw his whole body in after him. Sin will grow to destroy. So when we see believers who have committed some of the most heinous sins we can imagine, it should surprise us and in some cases, it might be appropriate to question if, they were, if there was true salvation. Yeah. Yeah. But as long as sin is allowed to come in and the Spirit's influence is quenched, the Bible calls it grieving the Spirit. The Spirit is going to convict you of this and you decide not to follow. This sin will grow. So we have, we have believers who were slave owners. How, how is that even possible? If sins like white supremacy ideologies are not submitted to the spirit, yeah. there isn't a limit to how big that can grow. Mm. Let that be a warning for us. Yeah. Whatever the sin is, if it's not submitted to the spirit, there isn't a limit to how big this can grow. In Acts 5, there are, there's a couple, um, a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. So they bring so this is the early church, and, and a lot of the believers are bringing offerings and gifts to the church that the church may support those who don't have enough. And so this couple sells something and brings it to the church and lies about how much they got from it. So there wasn't an obligation for them to do this. But they said, we want to come in and bring this offering, but I'm not going to be honest about how much we got from it. So it comes, and they lie to the apostle. Listen to how Peter speaks to them. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart? Same word. Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land. So there's a sense in which the minor things that we keep away from the Spirit, when we aren't filled by the Spirit, 
we are opening ourselves up to all of the schemes of the evil one. If we are looking to be overcomers, it must be through us being filled by the Spirit and submitted to the Spirit. Now, church, this is not asking for perfection. This is important. The gospel doesn't assume, expect us to be perfect. If that was the case, Jesus Christ would have never come. Jesus Christ came to die for sin. He gave us his spirit that we may be sanctified or that we would mature into the image of Christ. What this is saying is that in our imperfections, will we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit? Will we let him fill all the areas of our lives and be submitted to what he says about these areas of our lives? That is how we will be guarded from the spiritual attacks that are coming. Scripture says the devil prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour. He is actively working. <laughs> he is actively working. Um, on our end, may we submit ourselves in our weaknesses to the Spirit. It's the Spirit who guards us against spiritual attack. We can't do that ourselves. It's the Spirit. Um, it's Christ who guards His church against spiritual attack. It's not us individually. But we must be submitted to Him. It is the most... One of the craziest things to me, that the way Jesus Christ would seek to display his glory to all of the kingdoms and authorities. Scripture says that the church, the church is the way Jesus displays his wisdom and his glory to the watching heavens. Us imperfect people, <laughs> with all of our weaknesses, this is the vessel that the Lord wants to use to display His matchless glory to the watching hosts of heaven. It's bizarre to me. <laughs> and the reason is so that at the end of the day, it is that He receives the glory. It's not because this church was perfect and everyone in it was just like living this perfect, amazing life. It's that he said, I will use these broken people, submitted themselves to me, and I will pursue my purpose on this earth through them.